Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 213 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's guest is a landscape and underwater photographer living in Franklin, Tennessee. Matt McGee practices dentistry and spends his free time searching for his subjects under the sea. He's also got quite an eye for fine art underwater photography and a massive interest in conserving our oceans. In this week's show, you can expect to hear us talk about some of his experiences under the water, how he approaches his subjects under the sea, what he's noticed about the conditions of our oceans, and his process for fine art underwater photography. Before we dive in, see what I did there? I wanted to tell listeners about a really fun event hosted by my friend Gary Randall. Gary hosts annual photography campouts camp outs at Dead Ox Ranch near Portland, Oregon. The Dead Ox Ranch Photographers Campout is an annual event where photographers can meet, photograph, and share while learning new skills that will move your photography forward. It's also a great place for photography friendships to begin. Gary describes it as one big happy family at the Dead Ox Ranch. You can learn more at gary-randall.com or by visiting the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Matt McGee, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thanks. It's nice to sit down with another Matt and talk about uh, some photography stuff. So thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we've got some, uh, I guess, smart parents. Yeah, exactly. Well, I go by my middle name's Matthew, so um, my first name is James. So I don't know if you're that way or not, but um, yeah. Okay. No, that's that's cool. My 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 original name is Matthew as well, um, but you know, it's it's one of those names that's reserved for like when your mom gets really mad at you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> if you get the full name, you know you've done something really bad. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, cool, man. So I was really excited um, when we connected because uh, I think you're the first person to come on the podcast that's got extensive uh, work in underwater photography. And I've been really wanting to uh, talk to somebody about that. It's something I've been interested in, but also deeply terrified uh, to to try myself. And hopefully you can help dispel some of those fears and myths for us. But before we get into all that, maybe uh, let's take a few minutes for you to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how how you even got into photography to begin with. So I'm from um, Franklin, Tennessee, which is sort of a suburb of Nashville, and um, I'm a dentist here in town. And the way I got started in photography was um, I bought a camera to use at, at the office for documenting cases and just, you know, communicating with labs and that type of thing. And this was years ago. It was the the Canon 10D. And back then that was the height of technology and it was so fancy and all that kind of thing. So I bought that and started playing around with it at work. And then I just started taking it home on the weekends and started taking pictures of just anything and everything and just started realizing I've kind of got a talent for this and I enjoyed doing it. And I loved seeing, you know, creating these really nice images and um, then I was actually at a uh, continuing education class um, a few years after that, and the person was just sort of had a slideshow running before, and it was all underwater stuff. And I was like, this is cool. You know, I've always I loved Shark Week. I was fascinated with the ocean from the time I was a little kid. I just I was just uh, just always really interested in it. And I was thinking, man, maybe I could uh, take this take this camera underwater and, you know, start doing some photography down there. And um, I, I started literally paying attention to the, the 
the credits rolling at the end of these documentaries on on Discovery for Shark Week or whatever to see where the locations where these people were going to uh, to film these these you know amazing animals because I, I was like I got to do this and then I you know gradually found out uh, what tour operators would would get you to this place and just started making plans to to get an underwater housing set up and to to go there I started working on my scuba diving skills got certified. And just started setting the wheels in motion. In about 2007, I took my first DSLR underwater. And this was before I'd, I mean, I, the first one I had was a disposable camera that was just in a little plastic box and just worked my way up. And, you know, several years later, here we are. That's awesome. Did you have any artistic outlets before you got into photography? Not really. And that's yeah. what's so weird because, uh, you know, I can't draw to save my life, but, you know, <laughs> I, I can't paint. I can't do any of that stuff. But then when you've got this instrument that you can capture, uh, you know, create a photograph, I've, I just found that I could work with that. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. I have almost zero artistic talents whatsoever outside of photography. And my photography talents are questionable as is. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting how picking up the camera kind of unleashes part of our psyche and our brain that was kind of untapped. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's one of these things we start playing with the settings. It's like, well, are you, is this reality? Because if I change the shutter speed, it's going to look a lot different. And you just start realizing how you can, you know, manipulate this device to create your version of reality, I guess. And um, sure. that's kind of what, I guess the the feeling behind what got this in motion. Right. Well, so so I think a lot of your work is underwater, but you also do a lot of work in, in landscape. You do aerial, you do fashion, um, you've done underwater fashion and underwater fine art. What's your favorite? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, it just varies. I mean, right now I'm, I'm kind of getting back into landscapes. Um, those underwater fashion shoots are so much fun, but it's Oh my gosh, it's a ridiculous amount of work that goes into it. Um, I'm telling you, man, diving with sharks and and, and capturing those images, it, it's it's a lot of fun. It, it really is amazing to be up close with these amazing animals. And uh, you get to experience something that most people won't ever get the opportunity to. So, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, it just varies. I like them all. They're just, it's just different... Um, Different aspects of them are fun, but then you can also carry over some of the um, uh, the skill sets that are required for the different genres, or, or, you know, and it helps out with other um, other genres of photography. So starting off underwater was probably the most difficult <laughs> one to start <laughs> with and then kind of worked into everything else. Yeah, well, I have a, a bunch of questions that are related to that that I want to dive into a little bit later on, but... Uh, you know, in terms of underwater photography, I know you just touched on it a little bit, but I was curious why you've been so drawn to to that subject uh, in particular, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what some of the unique challenges are relating to underwater photography, and maybe what some of the rewards of it are. Well, I guess what initially got me started was just the wildlife. I was just drawn to that, um, and when I first got into scuba diving, I was like, man, I, I want to be able to photograph this. This is just too cool. I mean, cause it's when you're in the ocean, you know, we're not, we're not supposed to be able to, to live underwater. We can't, you know, most people can't hold their breath that long. And I, I still, I still, every time I get in the water, 
and I may be down for five minutes and I'm just like, wow, I, I'm not supposed to be able to do this, but here I am. <laughs> this, is, this is not supposed to be possible. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the fun factor that goes with it. But, oh man, the challenges, there, there's just so many that, you know, just starting off with keeping your camera dry, you've got to get a, a whole nother set of um, equipment. So it, it wasn't that photography gear isn't expensive enough. Now you got to find a way to to keep it dry. So you've got the the housing which is basically the box that your camera body goes in. Then you've got the lens ports, which are the the coverings that go over the lenses and the port extension, which makes the port longer or shorter, depending on the the length of the lens. And then you've got the sync cords for your your strobes. And then the strobes have to be waterproof. And then you've got to put the extension arms on there to get them out wide or, or you, maybe you use a snoot with it. or um, And then sometimes you got to get that thing to be buoyant. So you put little styrofoam floaties on there um <laughs> there's focusing lights you know sometimes it's hard for the camera to find focus so you got to have a light on on top of your housing for that um a vacuum system to pull a vacuum on your uh housing so everything is you know tight all the way and it's not going to leak because i've had a camera leak and I, it was ruined i mean that's it salt water is very unforgiving yeah game so, over <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it sucks when you're down at sixty feet because you can't just bolt up to the surface and and you know throw it in some rice right away. You're it's done. But uh, yeah, so from an equipment standpoint, that's um, that's huge. And I think one thing that I didn't realize, and a lot of people didn't realize, is when you're down there, the light gets filtered, the the wavelengths get filtered the deeper you go. So when you get to about fifteen twenty feet, the red wavelengths are gone. And the deeper you go, the less color there is. So you've got to bring your light with you to illuminate your subjects to make those coral reefs look nice and and colorful and pretty. Because when you're down there, especially if you're down to like 90 feet or so, it just looks blue-green. It doesn't look anything like you see in photographs. So um, that's something that, that's really critical is having those strobes and having them positioned properly. But then along those lines, the light only goes about six feet. So you've got to get really close to your subject. Um, so if you're shooting large animals like sharks or rays or something like that, you're going to need a really wide uh, lens to get them all in frame. And um, you're going to need, a, dare I say, some stones? <laughs> you know, and I, I should be really clear about this. It's I don't want to sound cavalier or like I'm an adrenaline junkie or something. It's, it's not done for that. It's, you know, the first time you do it, it's a little, it's a little crazy. Like there's a shark. Oh my gosh. You know, <laughs> Oh my God. but you, they're, they're not out to get you. They're curious. They want to see what, what you're about. You know, they'll come up and, and they'll check you out. And, and some species are definitely more bold than others, but, um, it's, it's not like that. It's it, people are like, you're in a cage. You're, you know, no, we're not in a cage. You're just out there with them. And it's, um, that's part of what's so cool about it to, to have a, you know, I can't think of another animal that large in the, in the wild that will come that close to you or like a manta ray. Those things are gigantic and they'll come right up to you. It's, it's, it's just really a cool experience. Oh, I'm sure. How, how long did it take you to get used to being that close to such interesting and, um, you know, in different creatures? I, it, I, I was ready to do it. I wanted to do it. So it didn't take me long. I, I, I don't want to sound, you know, like it was no big deal. But the but the first dive, I was loving it within five minutes. I was psyched. Um, 
but you have to be really careful because the things that are, you know, that I've gotten hurt by are like jellyfish or hydroids or something like that, that you bump into and you get stung. I mean, those are more of a concern to me than, than the animals I'm photographing. I mean, you have to have a, definitely have to have a healthy respect for these animals because yes, they've killed people. They've killed divers. You just have to, you know, go by a certain protocol. And, um, you know, if you see a bull shark in the area, yeah, you know, keep your eye on that one because it could get a little, you know, they can be a little territorial. Um, you know, fortunately I've never had any close encounters at all, but, um, you just kind of have to have a healthy respect for them. Sure. Sure. Well, I want to talk a little bit more shark, about sharks in a, in a minute, but, uh, I, you, you did a really great job of talking about a lot of what the challenges are in terms of underwater photography, but I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about what some of the, uh, some of the unique rewards of engaging in that style of photography are. Well, it's getting some, some images that most people don't have for, for one thing. Um, I've really increased my knowledge about the ocean and, um, and different, different animals and their, you know, their habitats and, and the challenges of, you know, the environment and what we're doing to as, as humans polluting it. And as what we're doing as humans is overfishing and all that type of thing. Um, I would say the biggest reward though, is just the experience. What you're seeing firsthand that most people will never get to see is, um, it's just really, really special. And it's, it's different because, you know, you can't go down there forever. You've got, you know, so much air in your tank. And when you get low, you got to come back up. So um, it's just making the most of that time. And, you know, it's you never know what you're going to get, because sometimes you go down there and you may see something incredibly rare and that and people will be back on the boat high fiving, you know, you know, loving that. Or you may get a particularly cool encounter. I've been at Cocos Island. I had a these really shy um, scalloped hammerhead sharks, and one of them just came I, I, within six inches of me. It was just absolutely amazing to be that close, and it was that was the first time I was like, "Man, this is this is really something special." Yeah, no doubt. Well, let's let's talk about sharks. I know, you know, we had alluded to it a little bit earlier, but you know, I think there's a certain stigma about sharks that might may or may not be uh, well deserved, and I was. I know that you're super passionate about sharks and obviously you can tell by the way you're talking about photographing them that they're very, you know, special to you. Um, tell us a little bit about what we should know about sharks. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, more sharks are killed by humans every year than, than sharks kill people. I mean, it's incredibly rare and that's what, you know, most people think, Oh my gosh, if you step in the ocean, these things are, are out to get you. And, Quite honestly, most of the time when someone gets uh, gets bitten or attacked, it's usually an accident. The shark is mistaking whoever's in the water for something that is normally a food item for them. Or a lot of times it's very poor visibility that, um, that will cause that. And it's usually going to be great whites, tigers, or bull sharks that, um, that are doing the doing the damage. And then the overwhelming majority of the other species have never had any run-ins with, with humans. Um, but yeah, they're, um, so yeah, they, they need to be respected. They can do damage, but, um, we're doing far more damage to them than they are to us. And one of the big things behind that is the demand for shark fin soup in Asia, which is considered kind of a luxury delicacy over there. And what they do is they cut the fins off of the shark and then they 
put it into this soup and it sells for like, I don't know, $50, $100 a bowl or something like that. And they serve it at weddings and that type of thing. But the demand for it's really high. So what's happening is you are seeing these fleets come over from Asia and they are fishing in areas where there's lots of sharks. They'll catch the animal, they'll cut the fins off and they throw the rest of the body back in the ocean because the body is not worth anything. Nobody wants to eat the meat. It's really, you know, as apex predators, all the mercury content is kind of concentrated as it works its way up the food chain. And so it's not really good to eat those, those types of fish. Um, so they can get a lot more fins if they don't have to have the bodies with them. And that type of practices that people are trying to shut that down, but there's just too much demand for it. And, you know, where there's money, people are going to find a way. And unfortunately they're just wiping out populations across the world. And then the bad part of that is if you know anything about ecology, you remove an apex predator from an environment and it's going to have adverse effects. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. What um, what are some of the impacts of of the overfishing of of sharks and other apex predators in the ocean? Well, they they sort of you know they're gonna, they're like anything else. They're going to feed on the the sick and the weak, and so the the, the you know those populations of certain species of fish uh, they don't they're not as healthy. Um, it allows other you know invasive species to. Um, sort of become overpopulated. It just gets everything sort of out of alignment. They, the apex predators sort of keep keep sort of a homeostasis in there. And when you throw something in the system that messes it up, like removing the, the, the one off the top, then everything below it just kind of falls out of whack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's similar to like wolves. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I know there's a lot of people that are resistant to having wolves back intro- reintroduced into the wild, but there's tons and tons and tons of research that shows that it, it it only is a value add to the ecosystem and to the rivers and the overall health of other species. So it's, uh, I think the only people that have complaints about that kind of stuff are people who their livelihood is impacted like ranchers. And I guess in the case of sharks, it probably is maybe people that are, I mean, I don't know what sharks normally eat, but I don't know if that has any impact on the fishing industry at all. I'm guessing not really. I don't, not that I'm aware of. And I think it's more, they want to catch the sharks. So, um, yeah, I don't think it, um, it's, you know, the people that have resisted, they're resisting more of the conservation efforts because it's taking food off their table because these people are going out there and catching these animals and that's how they feed their family. Right. And when you're in a poor country, then, and that's your only source of income, you know, it's, they don't really care so much if they wipe out the the population of sharks or not. They just need to feed their family. Sure. I get that. Well, so maybe that's a good um, segue into talking a little bit about some of the observations that you've made about the world's oceans and in your travels as a underwater photographer. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of what you've noticed about the oceans and the condition of the ocean. So, um, for sharks, you're going to be in the Bahamas or Costa Rica. That's where I've done most of the shark photography that I've done. Um, and you can notice some differences, but the big differences in the ocean I've noticed are in Indonesia and uh, the Indo-Pacific. So basically, there's a place called the Limbe Strait in Indonesia, which is um, a little stretch of water between North Sulawesi Island and Limbe Island. And... Um, 
it's called it's something called muck diving because there's not a lot of coral reefs. You're just out there in the sandy bottom and you're just looking for these little they call them critters that live in the sand and in some of the small patches of coral. Beautiful animals. If you look on my website, the most colorful animals on there were all photographed in Limbe. Well, the problem is that place is like diving in a garbage dump. There's just stuff everywhere. Plastic bottle. I mean, you, you can find tons of pictures of like an octopus living in a glass bottle that just floated to the bottom of the ocean. Um, bags of chips, flip-flops, plastic bags, um, anything and everything you can imagine. Um, they don't have a very good drainage system. And when it when it rains and it floods, it's just all the garbage just gets swept out in there. And there's just, I remember sitting there on the edge of the boat and there's just trash floating on the top. And I thought I flew halfway around the world to jump into this and you're literally just sinking down and there's just plastic floating, you know, mid water. And like, this is crazy. And then of course you get down there and the, you know, the photography is wonderful because you've got all these little species of stuff, but some of them are, are living in trash and it is really bad to see. And, um, that's the biggest thing that I've witnessed firsthand is just the tremendous amount of garbage that is polluting these areas. Yeah. And it's interesting. I don't know if you listen to other podcasts, but I, I remember I was listening to a podcast from planet money of all podcasts. Um, and I think the Sierra club also did a whole segment on, on this as well, but uh, around recycling and plastic recycling and specifically, and from what I understand is that, um, here in the United States, you know, we're not very good at cleaning the plastic products that we try to recycle and, but there's not really any good standards for that here. It's just like, Oh, if it's plastic, throw it in the recycle. Um, and what ends up happening is that the companies in the, um, in Asia that buy up all of that, they're getting it from us and they're like, Oh, this isn't recyclable product. So they just throw it in landfills over there yeah, and then it ends up in the ocean. Yeah. Well, in a lot of these com- uh, countries, you can't drink the tap water, so everything's bottled water. Right. So how much you know single-use plastic bottles are out there, and there's a ton of them that I was in the water with. So it's, it's really a, a problem. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but as far as what I've seen firsthand, that's definitely been the worst. So I'm curious, uh, what do you think we can do about it as photographers, and why should we care? Well, I think we, you know, we have to be good stewards of the planet and our our oceans. Um, you know, so we're just destroying the earth if you if you just keep up this mentality. I guess as photographers, the thing you can do maybe is to to document this. And in some underwater photography competitions, they now have a category for this type of subject matter. So, you know, there was one where there was a seahorse with its tail wrapped around a Q-tip. Oh yeah, um, I remember that. That that might have actually been staged. There's a little debate around that one, but basically, <laughs> I'm shocked. You know, yeah, because nobody would ever do that in a photo competition. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just you know documenting this type of thing and sharing it with the world because you know most people you can't you know you can go out and and see garbage laying by the side of the road, but you don't see anything underwater. So if you go under there and say, look, you know, our water is seventy five percent or whatever water and this is what it looks like in it this is what we're doing to this this is the impact that we're having on our oceans that make up the majority of our planet you know so we need to start thinking about this and try to figure out a way to to take better care of it yeah it's it's always funny when plastic gets brought up because um i don't know what it's like where you live but here in colorado 
there have been several like local initiatives in different cities to like ban single use plastics or to to limit them. And of course, there's tons and tons and tons of uh, lash pushback and and lashback on those types of initiatives because you know it's a infringing on people's freedoms. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I I I, I kind of personally get the sense that unless you know, the, the general public, unless they're kind of forced to do something, they're not going to do it out of their the kindness of their own selves because they're not seeing the impact of the problem that's being created by their behavior. Right. And and I think that goes back to what photographers can do by showing people, you know, going underwater, going to these environments, taking high quality photos to say, this is what, this is what's going on. Um, right. So, yeah, but I think you're right. It's tough to get enough people to, um, to do something about it. Well, I don't want to spend too much time on the doom and gloom of planet Earth. Um, <laughs> you know, it is something I'm very passionate about, but it also can get kind of depressing. Um, I'm, I wanted to go back to kind of the different types of photography that you're into, um, specifically, you know, underwater, aerial, and landscape. And um, one of the things I was really interested in hearing you talk about was um, how the practice of each of those styles of photography has kind of informed the other. So for example, you know, what are things that you've learned through maybe underwater photography that you've been able to apply to either landscape or aerial and vice versa? It's really, really comes down to, and I guess everybody say the same thing, but learning about light. And when you're underwater, like I was saying, when you've got, you're taking the light with you for the most part, I mean, sometimes you get a little bit of ambient, but as I said, it gets, it gets filtered out the deeper you go. So really learning the direction and the position of your strobes and how you're aiming this light to create shadows. And I, I use a snoot a lot with, um, with the macro subjects. And that's really kind of interesting to, to work with the, to manipulate the light that way. Um, so I guess learning about that when you, you know, the light and the shadows, then you take that over to landscape photography, then you're, you know, starting to pay more attention to the position of the sun and how, how are the clouds affecting the light coming through there. And, and just, um, I think that's what it really is the biggest thing for me. And, um, again, in a way that underwater is probably the most challenging, but starting with that maybe forced me to learn more about, uh, that type of, you know, manipulating the light than I would have otherwise. In terms of um, finding your subjects um, or planning um, your trips for underwater photography, are you, I guess, tell us a little bit about your process in terms of um, the mixture between pre-planning versus just reacting to what it is you discover when you're down there? So I usually start with the subject that I want to photograph and work backwards from there. And usually that's going to start with wide angle or macro. I started out um, photographing sharks primarily. So I wanted to find out where you could get up close and personal with the most sharks. And you just kind of, you know, thank goodness for the internet because you can start digging around online and, and find stuff pretty quickly. But then it's, you know, finding the tour operators and what's it going to be like to get there. The first big location that I ever went to was, was Cocos Island. And it takes, it's in Costa Rica. It's actually um, uh, Treasure Island, the book when they were coming back. That's it's based on that. And um, in Jurassic Park, when he's, the guy says, I bought a small Island off the coast of Costa Rica. That was sort of the inspiration for that. Okay. Anyway, um, it takes a day and a half to get there by boat. 
So you step off the dock, get on the boat, and it's going to be 36 hours before you get to this place. So, you know, it's just learning about that type of thing. And, you know, so I've, I've been there. Then you find the locations in the Bahamas. Um, and you just find tour operators that will um, that will arrange a meeting between you and the different types of species of sharks you want to find. And and it's not like you're just going to jump in, in the water in the Bahamas and have, you know, a bunch of... Uh, great hammerheads, for example, come up. You got to go to specific places. So, uh, so with great hammerheads, as I was saying, bimini is where you're going to go. Another species called um, oceanic white tips. Uh, you're going to have to go to Cat Island in the Bahamas for those. So, it's just there's message um, like you know online forums that, that discuss these types of things, and it, it is a lot of um, a lot of homework and pre planning that goes into it for um, for sharks. For the smaller animals, the macro stuff, um, I've done a lot of that in Indonesia. And that can be a matter of getting down there and working with what you get because you don't know what you're going to see. You may see, you know, a blue ring octopus. You may see, um, you know, a colorful nudibranch that, that, um, which is a type of sea slug. Um, or you may see, you know, certain fish, whatever. You just don't know specifically. Now, sometimes you can ask the guide and say, hey, I'd like to find some Harlequin shrimp and they're like, all right, we're going this afternoon to this place and I'll take you there. So, um, with that type of thing, you, you may need a guide to, to show you exactly where to find these things because some of these animals, they live in certain, uh, environments. They may live on a certain type of sea fan or a crinoid or under certain types of shells or something. So sometimes you need a little help from the dive guides to, to find what you're looking for. It sounds like as you got deeper into underwater photography, you've almost had to become somewhat of an expert in terms of the the biology and the environments and things of that nature. I'm curious, as you've kind of progressed through this um, endeavor, how has your relationship with uh, the places that you've learned to photograph, how has that improved um, your ability to create compelling images? Well, I think you just, you learn more about their behavior and, you know, you, you start to move from taking a picture that's just, you know, fill the frame, uh, with the, whatever animal that's going to be in the fish ID book to something that's more of a compelling image that shows some of the behavior of that animal. And usually with the trips that I go on, um, something called a live aboard. So you live aboard the boat. You don't go to a hotel and that type of thing. So you're with these people for a week and a half or how long it is. So you got a lot of time at lunch and dinner and breakfast where people will discuss these types of things. And invariably there've been people that know a lot more about this than I do. So I just listen to what they have to say. Um, going back to Cocos Island, one of the dive guides was an actual marine biologist and he's been featured on CNN and shark week several times and, and that type of thing. So, I mean, you're talking about a wealth of knowledge of this type of thing. And, oh, by the way, we just, you know, he talked about it. Now we're going to get in the water with these animals and he's going to he's going to be able to, you know, show firsthand what we were talking about. And so you learn about things like uh, symbiotic relations, like with with cleaning stations, for example. One of the big things uh, at Cocos to get the sharks to come in are these cleaning stations. And it's incredibly cool because these hammerheads will school in the hundreds. It's, it's unbelievable. And they'll come up to the rock. And they'll slow down almost to a stop and they kind of turn sideways, like, you know, tip off to one side just a little bit. And apparently that's the signal that that triggers these little cleaner fish that come up and they'll eat the little parasites off of these sharks' bodies. Now, I would have never known anything about that. 
And they told us that. And they're like, look, they said, if you want to get the photo, look for the little yellow butterfly fish, because those are the ones that are going to be cleaning the sharks the most. And if you see a collection of about 10 or 12 of them, get close by and just wait. And sure enough, you sit there and you see these hammerheads come in and they slow down to almost a stop. And these things just start nibbling the little parasites off there, which are just really irritating to the sharks. So it's cool. Yeah. That's so cool. What's the um, what's the single most uh, memorable thing that uh, that you witnessed as an underwater photographer? I, I would say it's the schooling hammerheads um, at Cocos, and people don't know for sure why they come together. But there's a site called Alcyon, which is about. Um, Oh, it's about a mile offshore and it's literally just a, a floating orange ball out there to mark the dive site. And you drop down to about a hundred feet and then you look up and there, there they come. And it's just like a sky filled with, with <laughs> hammerhead sharks. And they're just, it's really, it's really amazing. And, you know, to witness that, it's just so, so cool. Well, I wanted to pause for a moment and ask you for a favor. I put a lot of work into making this podcast week in and week out. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen. For as little as $5 a month, you can make a huge difference and keep the show running. Okay, let's get back to our conversation with Matt. Going back to the the process of creating these images, what are some of the uh, compositional elements of underwater photography that might be a little bit, you know, might not be as intuitive as people would think? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, well, for the big animals, I like to get a sense of motion. I mean, obviously, you want to have the eye in, in focus. But um, so, you know, the sharks are cartilaginous they don't have they don't have bones they have cartilage for their skeleton so they're it's really easy for them to bend and to get into to kind of cool um positions um sometimes it's fun to sort of get above them and shoot down onto the sand where they've got that sort of right in the middle their the, the their tail going back and forth to get that sort of s shape to them uh manta rays are really cool that way because they've got the wings and sometimes that they're just at the right bend in them they're just such they're so fluid and so you know graceful those are um that's kind of fun to think about with those. With the macro subjects, um, I, I think I alluded to, I use a snoot a lot just to sort of make them pop against the background because where I've photographed them, a lot of times the background is either one of those that's filled with trash and just sand or you're on a colorful, colorful uh, coral reef. So sometimes you're either, you have a, a background that's ugly or you got a background that your subject is competing against. So you got to try to isolate them. So that's where manipulating that light to just hit the subject for the most part and not have the, uh, you know, the, the piece of garbage behind it illuminated or, you know, the bright color of the corals. So that's, that's something as far as composition goes that, um, that you really have to try to try to think about. No, it makes all sense. It's a color separation, um, looking for patterns, looking for, you know, interesting uh, shapes, things of that nature. I think it's all kind of the same stuff, right? Well, in some of the the um, their environments, like if you have one of these crinoid 
squat lobsters, for example, the crinoids themselves will be these really coiled on, they almost look like a fern, um, but they're actually moving. So sometimes you can get these circular shapes where the, they're, you know, whatever the animal is living on is, is, is producing some shapes that you can try to try to work with that as well. Yeah, that makes sense. That's awesome. So, uh, one other question I had about, (laughs) about your underwater adventures is, uh, is there been a underwater sea creature that kind of is like your white ghost, like, like you've been trying to capture it forever and it just keeps eluding you? Um, there's a species of fish called a rhinopius, which is sort of, uh, they, they say the Holy grail. Um, those are really, really hard to find. Um, and then as far as big animals go, uh, thresher sharks are the one that I would, they're just very, very, there's not many places there's, well, there's only one that I know of where you can predictably see them and they're in the Philippines. And that, that's the shark that's got that, the, their tail, it's got that really long upper lobe that, that just stretches out almost as long as the length of the rest of its body. So that's just a very distinctive and unique looking animal, um, so those are the two. And then I guess just in general, whales. I've never seen a whale. I've heard them, but there's a lot of places to see humpbacks. People are diving with uh, orcas, um, sperm whales. Any of that would be cool for me. I haven't um, experienced that. Yeah, that would be amazing. And what about like dolphins or porpoises? I've seen a few dolphins, but with as much time as I've spent in the water, it's really kind of surprising to me that I haven't seen more. Yeah. I have, I have no photos of a dolphin that I'm like, wow, this is really good. No. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It seems like they're pretty difficult to photograph. Well, some places, and I don't know where they are, but you'll find schools of them. They have a species called spinner dolphins and there'll be hundreds of those. And there's a, uh, yeah, I remember seeing that in one of the recent planet earth documentaries. Yeah. There's a, um, there's a migration phenomenon type thing on the, uh, I guess it's the West coast of Africa called the sardine run. And all these millions and millions of sardines will migrate down South, down the coast of Africa. And you can see everything, whales, dolphins, tons of species of sharks, everything. So maybe one of these days I can try that and maybe just hit it all in one trip. Well, this might be a little bit more of a personal question, but, um, you know, it's, it occurs to me that, that taking up this, this type of photography probably incurs a a little bit of financial, um, burden. So do you have any suggestions for people that are hoping to get into this without, you know, selling their house and, and, and losing their marriage? Well, yeah, (laughs) I mean, photography in general is expensive just from the equipment standpoint and travel and that type of thing. And then this has the added expense of, um, of the gear for the the housing and lighting, not to mention your, your scuba equipment, that type of thing. So there's definitely going to be an investment. Um, sometimes you can find used gear and have it reserved, uh, serviced as far as the, the diving equipment goes. Camera equipment, same thing, but you're kind of running a little bit of a risk. If they didn't really maintain it and take care of it, you may or may not have something that's that's uh, that's water that's that's pr- properly sealed. But most of the gear coming out these days have uh, vacuums on them, so that really you can almost you know those are almost foolproof that you can just do those and, and you're not going to have a problem with a leak. Um, so, and the other thing though that I forgot to mention about that is once you buy one of these housings to fit your camera. That's it. And if you get the next model, you know, if you go from the 5D Mark III to the 5D Mark IV and they move one button just a tiny bit, it won't work. So, you know, it may be that you stop buying photography equipment because you're sort of married to this housing camera body configuration. 
but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not cheap. The, um, the liveaboards, it's kind of nice because once you paid for that, you paid for your food, you paid for your lodging, and there's nowhere to spend money out there. So it's not like if you're in one of these land-based places where they got a casino where you can go lose all your money. And, you know, there's, you know, basically once you push off on the dock, there's, you're not going to come across any opportunities to spend money. So I guess that's a silver lining behind that. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, you just got to plan for it and, and save up. And, you know, some of these things I'll book a year in advance. And uh, just start, you know, making payments along the way to try to chip away at it before uh, before it comes time to leave. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. All right, well let's um, let's let's talk a little bit about the the underwater um, fine art photography that you do um, with models. I'm assuming with models. Yes. Um, so describe it to us a little bit so we get an idea of kind of what we're even talking about. And then I would love to hear about kind of what has inspired you to take this up. So with the underwater fine art, you're basically, I'm looking at it as a standpoint of trying to create a surreal image because basically you can go underwater and it looks like gravity is just gone. And additionally, you have the the ability to get reflections at the surface if you position yourself and and angle the camera just right. Um, And then of course, long flowing hair, long flowing fabrics. I think all of that type of thing adds to, to making the, you know, just look like a, a, you know, foreign environment and and everything's just weightless and floating. And, um, I just started seeing images like that online and I thought, wow, this is really cool. I've already got the gear to do this. I just need to find someone that can, can model underwater. And, and that actually is, is a huge challenge because it's not easy. Uh, so yeah, I just started kind of playing around with that and, um, looking for, uh, I never thought I would be online looking for long dresses on eBay and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and then, uh, finding stuff like parachutes, you can make into a dress and take that underwater. And it's, I'm telling you, that's probably the most difficult photography I've ever done. Yeah. So what, what are some of the elements that make it challenging? Well, first of all, the, the the planning and creating your studio, for lack of a better term. Most of my stuff was shot against a, a black backdrop. Well, I don't really know any place that sells a backdrop big enough to cover a pool. So I got, um, I went on Amazon and bought six king size flat sheets and took them to uh, a seamstress. Actually, I took it to a few to get them all st- stitched together into the one giant piece of fabric. Uh, the first few I went to that wouldn't do it. I finally found someone who did. And, um, yeah, so then you, you got to build your backdrop and then those sheets don't sink. So you got to weigh them down to the bottom of the pool. And so that's a whole challenge. Um, and then finding people that can do it. I mean, you can't just go to a modeling agency and say, Hey, I need some models to come do this underwater because most people get a little freaked out. They can't have that serene and peaceful look on their face because they're panicked. Um, and people can drown. I mean, if you put someone in a vintage wedding dress that looks beautiful underwater and put them in an eight foot pool and it gets waterlogged, they can't just bolt to the surface. Right. So, um, so it takes a team. I mean, I have a lifeguard when I do these things, you got people trying to keep the, the backdrop in place. Cause once they get in there and start kicking around, it starts moving and, um, and then they'll come in there with a bunch of makeup. You have to really tell them ahead of time, you know, don't come have a lot of makeup on or because it gets the water cloudy. And I mean, you take that for granted when you're shooting on land, but tell you what, swimming pools are dirty 
And I'll, I'll tell the people beforehand, I'm like, man, I want you to chlorinate the heck out of this. And, and it just it gets clear. But then as the day goes on, it, you get more and more people in there. The, the visibility just goes south. It's not good. And you just have to stop. Well, so how are you? <laughs> so you're renting like swimming pools from people like how, how, what's your process for even doing that? So, um, I've, I've got a couple of people here in town that I've, I usually go to, to their pool, but, um, usually it involves either knowing somebody that has a pool. Um, but people are hesitant because of the liability of this type of thing. Cause when you tell them what you're about to do, they're like, yeah, I don't think I want that going on in my house. Um, but I've found a couple of people that I, I usually go to and, and one of them's an Airbnb and I just, um, well, they're both Airbnb. So I just rent the Airbnb and you've got the whole thing to yourself. So you can have a, um, you can have a room where people can change or, you know, lay out the wardrobes and all that kind of thing. Um, one of the guys, he loves it. He wants to know when I'm coming back. He just has so much fun because we did a, I did a big Facebook group shoot one time. There's probably 20 or 30 people involved. And so you just got people out there with the, on the deck with just helping lay everything out. And he just, he thought it was like a big party and it kind of was. Um, but it's, it's difficult. If you don't have your own pool, it's, it's, it can be a struggle. So, so you you've got like a whole crew that goes out and does it with you. Yeah, I've um people. It's interesting when you show them what you're doing, they kind of get excited about it. Um, they're like, oh yeah, I want to be a part. I just want to see how you do it. I mean, some of the photographers, they're just they just want to see how it's done. Other people just want to, you know, be a part of that and to see to see um see what the images look like and, you know, it's it's cool. It's 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 kind of easy to get the people to help you, but the models can be hard to find. And then some of them, they just flake, which is really frustrating. You got everything set up. You've spent all this time and money to pull off this shot. And they're like, Oh, something came up and it's very frustrating. (laughs) Yeah, that would be very frustrating. Um, Have you developed some relationships with some that are kind of, go-to that are better than others oh yeah oh yeah i mean there's there's a couple in particular um that they're they travel they know how to do this you you know they get paid others yeah i mean i pay them because that's what they do and because they do it well you know other people they just can't they can't hold their breath they can't get underwater it's just it's just kind of a waste but these i mean one of them man she can hold her breath for like two minutes or something. It's ridiculous. So, um, and they're just, they're just comfortable underwater. Yeah. 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 Have you, so what were some of your goals for, um, this type of work? I mean, I guess initially it's just, it's just fun and it's cool when you pull that image up and it looks like, you know, something that not a lot of people have done. You're like, wow, this is, this is pretty neat. I mean, so for this point, it's sort of a labor of love, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I would love to have somebody pick it up and, and be displayed in a in a gallery or a coffee house or something like that and have, you know, ha- I guess every artist um, on some level wants to have their a, a bigger audience for what they do because a lot of effort goes into it. And I, I would I would like to see it, you know, sort of appreciated on, on some other level. But uh, th- that's not why I do it. Um, I just enjoy the process, even though it is hard work. Um it's it's fun to do. Yeah, I was going to ask in terms of the uh, the underwater photography and sharks and and the macro work and also this this kind of fine art stuff. Have you found that there's a market for people wanting to to purchase this type of work? 
I think the the stuff that I've sold has been landscape. Um, not many people want a picture of a tiger shark above their couch. Um, <laughs> so there's not much of a market for that. Um, and then the fine art stuff, um, I haven't really tried to get it out there as, as much as the other stuff. So maybe there's some potential there. But some of them are implied nudes or have nudity in them. So people may not want a, a naked person on their wall either. Maybe some people might. I, I'm, you know, I don't know. But most of what the interest that I've had in, in the photography I've done has been the uh, landscapes. Interesting. Yeah. And I know you uh, have your own dental practice. Do you have a lot of your own stuff hanging up on the walls and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, most of my patients that have, been coming to me for a period of time know that this is what i do and they always ask about it and it's 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 fun to have that uh conversation i mean in some instances it has given an opportunity to start a discussion about sharks and how they're you know hey look i took this photo and i'm still here and i have all my fingers and toes (laughs) and nothing got eaten off and then you can sort of move that into a discussion about the condition of how we're overfishing these animals and but yeah, I think it's just it gives an opportunity to have a discussion and to start a conversation um, with with patients and just and in, in turn, I guess that's the general public to just talk about some of these things that they might not know about otherwise. And I've sold a few of them. Some people were interested enough that they wanted to to buy some, so I've I've sold a few of the um, of the photos that way. Cool. So what's uh what's what's next for you in the underwater world or or in in your landscape? What are you looking forward to? Well, what's immediately next is um, Southern Utah. So, you know, with COVID and everything, it's hard to, to travel, especially internationally. But um, I've been vaccinated. I'm ready to go. And I'm headed to Southern Utah in two weeks. Great. So um, it's I haven't I haven't really been to a national park, which is crazy. If, you know, there have been all these other crazy, you know, remote locations. And I haven't been to the uh, out west in my own country. So, um yeah, Southern Utah, Northern Arizona, and I've been doing a lot of research on YouTube, learning about what's um, what's cool to photograph out there. So I'm really getting ready uh, for that. As far as underwater goes, um, I, I think I'd like to go back to Bimini with the great hammerhead sharks. Those are a lot of fun to dive with. And um, Cuba is kind of opening up, which is which is interesting. Oh. So it's one of these locations that people haven't been diving in a whole lot. Uh, so maybe the reefs are kind of undisturbed. Um, North Carolina has some some wrecks with sand tiger sharks. Oh, cool! That um, I've ne- I've never photographed them. They kind of you know group together in, in schools as well. So um, yeah, just kind of thinking of a few different locations, but just really sort of waiting for the world to hopefully open up again and <laughs> get back to normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be nice. Um, cool, man. Well, so wrapping things up, I'm curious, uh, who you would recommend, uh, our listeners learn more about or have here on the podcast. Um, as far as underwater goes, um, Epic diving, they're dive operators there and they do some photography as well, but I think they're really interesting because you get the perspective of what it's like to lead these tours and to, um, to bring the sharks in to be photographed. They, um, they're, they're interesting. Um, Benjamin Hardman, um, as far as landscapes has a fascinating story. He, he lives in Iceland now, but he's Australian and he moved up there a few years ago and didn't, didn't know anybody just 
kind of set off on his own. And now he's become this hugely popular photographer up there. He's got a huge following on Instagram and social media in general and worked for a lot of big name companies. And he's, um, he does some really cool work and he, not just in Iceland, but he's gone to, um, Greenland, um, Svalbard, the Faroe Islands. Um, and lately he's been, uh, photographing and, and videoing the volcano that's been erupting up there for a couple of weeks. So, um, of course there's a lot of people up there. It's not just him, but, um, I think he's really, he's really good. Awesome, man. Well, Hey, this has been a lot of fun. I've, like I said, I haven't had anyone that exclusively does or predominantly does a lot of underwater work. So it's, it's, you know, in, in some ways I'm at a deficit in terms of what questions to ask, but I think we covered a lot of really interesting territory. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, I think we did. And I think it's, um, it's, it's a lot of fun to do. It's, it's got its own set of challenges that go with it, but, um, it's, it's, it's been really rewarding and I've enjoyed it and can't wait to get back in the water again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Hey man, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to have a chat. All right. Appreciate you having me. Cool. Well, thanks again to Matt for joining joining me on today's show. It's always great to chat with someone with that much passion and energy for Mother Earth, and hopefully others will be inspired by our conversation to take action to help conserve our oceans. I wanted also to thank Bree Stockwell for starting up weekly clubhouse discussions for the podcast on our club over there. These are going to be ongoing on Fridays and are designed to be a platform for listeners to chat with each other about each episode in a casual format. We hope to get guests and me, the host, over there to answer questions or to just hang out. You can find a link to the club in the show notes of the podcast. I also wanted to thank our latest Patreon supporter, David Connor. David is supporting the show at $5 a month. Thanks to all of our ongoing supporters over on Patreon at patreon.com slash fstop and listen. If you're interested in supporting the show in other ways, here are a few things that can really help out. You can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Those really help spread the word to other people that this is a podcast worth listening to. You can start engaging in conversations about the podcast on your social media channel of choice. You can engage with other listeners in our weekly discussion forums over on NPN. Really, I'm just thankful that you're listening. Thanks for that. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.